Okay, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to try and work out what that three chapters is all about. Let's pray. Father God, we ask now that as we have heard you speak to us through your word, that you would please give us wisdom and insight to understand it. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity and privilege that we have to be able to come and meet together like this. And we ask, please, Father, that uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit, he would enable us to change our lives, that we would rightly think about who you are and the way in which you work in the world, and that that would change the way we live in the world. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, I think most of us have a desire to be heard. Most of us have a desire to be noticed. Uh, I think some of us are quite happy to be introverted, but I think the majority of us at some point in life actually want other people to notice us. We do this in the way we dress. We do this in the way we behave. But often we do it in the way in which we speak. We actually want people to know we exist. Okay? We want people to hear us. And particularly, and more so, if we've got an opinion, we actually want people to hear us even more. Because we often think that our opinion is not only worth hearing, but also worth following. See, we're going to go to great lengths to then try and do this. Okay? We'll either argue until we know that the person that we're arguing with has been persuaded of our point of view, or we'll just sort of do the sort of slow drip, 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 until the person goes, okay, 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 I hear what you're saying. Uh, I can think of no greater illustration than the desire to be heard than Facebook. <laughs> Notice that they give you a wall on which to write stuff. If they didn't want you to be heard or noticed, what would they give you? They'd give you a closet. And you'd write stuff in there and no one would be able to see it. But they've given you a very public thing upon which you can actually voice your opinion so that others can hear about it. Now, admittedly, some of us are quite happy that our friends are the only ones who see what we write on our wall. But nevertheless, it's a means by which we want to be heard. And yet I want to suggest that often the desire to be heard is actually a cry for help. Now, not always, but I think in some cases, the desire to be heard, the desire to be noticed, the desire for people to recognise a particular point of view can often be a cry for help. And you see this in a number of different ways. You see the environmentalists who are continually desiring to be heard. You may be in this category. You may actually think the world is in great, grave peril and you've jumped on this environmental bandwagon and you will just talk to anyone who will listen. It will take up all your disposable time. Why do you want people to notice? Why do you want people to hear? Well, you actually think there's a great peril. You actually think that there's a danger. You actually think that the earth is crying out for help. And you, in some small way, are going to be the mouthpiece of this cry for help. I think sometimes when our politicians do this, particularly on the issue of climate change, we sort of nod, nod, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, I've heard all this before. But you notice that the cry for help often comes most acutely from those who are in the middle of the situation. The man or the woman on the South Pacific Island who appears on the TV, albeit for one or two minutes, and says, when I grew up, the surf only came up to over there. Now that I've grown up, the surf comes up to my house. And at that point you go, oh, actually, he's right in the middle of this desperate situation and he wants people to hear. He wants people to know his plight. Not so we'll say, okay, we agree climate change is an issue. No, no, it's systematic and symptomatic of a deeper issue, a cry for help. Well, we see it in other ways. You know, that great story that you tell your children, uh, you may tell your children, 
story of the boy who cried wolf. You've heard this story growing up, haven't you? Your parents told you this story? No, this is a generation of... Oh, good. Uh, this is one of these mandatory stories that you've just got to tell children. Okay? And what does the boy do? The boy in the story, he wants people to hear him. He wants to be noticed. And so he goes around telling everyone, telling everyone, the wolf, the wolf, the wolf's coming over there. And people go, nah, it's not really. But do you notice what happens in the very last one? When it is actually truly the cry for help, what happens? It falls on deaf ears. It falls on deaf ears. But in this case, in that situation, the boy's desire to be heard was in fact a cry for help. And we see it in other ways, and this may be cutting a bit closer to home, you may have friends or family who, in desperately wanting to be heard, the cry for help is one where they're in danger of taking their own life. And you see this in tragedies that come up on the news of people who take their own life and often family and friends say, I had no idea that this was the case. There was a story last year of a girl who, uh, the story came out of the news, six or eight weeks later they ran a follow-up story. It was sort of buried down on page four or five of the newspaper. The thing that struck me was that it actually gone back through her MySpace uh, pages. And actually someone had actually tracked back through a lot of her MySpace pages and realised that over the period of about six to eight months, what she was saying was actually becoming a more desperate cry for help until finally, in a very tragic way, she took her life. This girl in particular wanted to be heard because of a great cry for help and yet it appeared as though no one was listening. Well, as we turn to Habakkuk, uh, the oracle that Habakkuk saw, chapter 1, verse 1, in many respects, what we see here is a cry for help. Habakkuk is crying out on behalf of the nation of Israel and he's crying out for help. Now, unless you've read Habakkuk recently, uh, this may be a bit of an unusual part of the Bible. Um, I dare say it's not really a part of the Bible that you will have read in three chapters or have had read to you in three chapters. Uh, The aim is we will do that every week. We're going to read all three chapters every week. I want you to feel for the entire oracle, the entire prophecy, rather than just bits and pieces here and there. It's an unusual prophecy. There's some images in there that we're not quite familiar with. And the images are often different compared to, say, some of the New Testament imagery that we may be used to. But here I want to suggest that the cry for help from Habakkuk comes at a very delicate time in the nation of Israel's history. And the prophecy is broken into three main sections. And at this point, uh, the chapter headings that our translators have given us pretty roughly follow the three main sections. Although I want to look for a minute in chapter 1 because I think at the moment in chapter 1, let me give you the three broad sections first. Uh, I think it takes the form of Habakkuk's inquiry or Habakkuk's complaint in chapter 1. I want to suggest to you that there is only one of those, not two of those. We'll come to that in a minute. Uh, The second component is the answer that the Lord gives, God's reply to Habakkuk in chapter 2, verses 2 to 20. And finally, there's what I call Habakkuk's changed attitude towards God. In chapter 3. Did you pick this up as you were hearing it? Did you hear the language that was used in chapter 1 that Habakkuk was using towards God and then notice the language that suddenly changes in chapter 3? Did you sense that as you read through it? If not, uh, keep an ear out, attuned for it if you read it between now and next week, going home on the bus this afternoon, and as we come to read it again in public meetings. But just pause for a minute as we're doing sort of the overview of what it's looking like. I want to suggest that the sort of more traditional view of chapter 1 of Habakkuk goes sort of along these lines. I hope you'll be able to see something back. 
Uh, most people will argue uh, quite persuasively that he's our prophet Habakkuk. <laughs> that's not his mouth, by the way. That's just his head. It's not quite connected. Uh, Habakkuk makes an inquiry of God, at which point God gives an answer. And our Bible translators, as most of the translations that I've seen, help us in this regard. Notice what they say. Habakkuk's first complaint. God's answer. Okay. And then what they'll do is they'll say, Habakkuk, he's got his head on properly this time, then makes a second inquiry and God gives a second answer. That, that's your fairly sort of stock standard read, according to the Bible translations. If you'd like the verses, the way it works out is the first inquiry is there from uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And then the reply from God is in verses 5 to 11. Habakkuk's second inquiry, according to some, would be then from uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 1. And God's response is then chapter 2, verse 2, right through to the end of the chapter. I'm going to suggest that I actually think something else is going on. I think what's going on is Habakkuk makes one inquiry of God. He makes one inquiry of God. Okay? And God gives him one answer. What I want to suggest is the answer that is given is in chapter 2, verses 2 to 20. 2 to 20. And we see here in the text, notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 20. You have to look and see what it says, make sure I'm getting it right. And the Lord answered me. And my question is, if it's two inquiries, where are we told that the Lord answers Habakkuk's first inquiry? Uh, you, you can't read the heading that the translators have put in, by the way, because that's not in the original manuscript. Okay? Which has leads me to wonder whether or not actually this is a more valid way of understanding what the text is saying. What I want to suggest is that Habakkuk makes one inquiry and it comes in two forms. The first is Habakkuk inquiring of God because of what he sees as he looks out on the landscape. And this is in chapter 1, verse 2 to, chapter, to verse 4. At that point, what Habakkuk does is Habakkuk actually remembers a previous prophecy that God had given the nation of Israel. Where God had said previously, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Look and you will not believe. Because at the time when the prophecy is given, the people would have gone, the Babahu? Because they might not have even existed as a nation. And what Habakkuk is doing as part of his one inquiry with God is he is actually reflecting back to a previous time when God had given a response to what was going to take place. And so Habakkuk's inquiry of God then legitimately takes two forms. The first is from verses 2 to 4, and secondly from 12 to 17. Another ground why I want to suggest this is that Habakkuk actually poses two particular questions of God in his one inquiry. He poses the first question in chapter 1, verse 2, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And bookended at the other end of the inquiry, down in verse 17, is, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I want to suggest that as Habakkuk at this particular point in history looks out at what he sees in the landscape, he asks two questions of God. God, I look at what's happening around me. Are you going to listen to our complaint on behalf of the nation of Israel? He reflects to the time when God said he would bring the Babylonians. He's observing the Babylonians coming and destroying the place. 
And so what does he say? He says to God, when will you restrain them, if ever? And at this point it raises the question of whether or not God is contradictory. Does God act consistently or does God act in a contradictory fashion? And I say this for three reasons. The first is that God initially appears not to listen. Habakkuk makes an inquiry of God. Will God answer? (coughs) Looking at the strife and what's going on, will God actually give an answer to Habakkuk? The second idea as to why God may appear to be contradictory is God appears unjust. How is it possible that God can bring this nation of the Babylonians to be an agent or an act of judgment? Surely this is not a just way in which God should deal with his chosen people. And thirdly, God is acting oh so slowly. God is acting oh so slowly. Surely God should deliver results when he's asked to deliver results. Because this is the question that Habakkuk's asking. Let's deal with these three one at a time. Firstly, I want to suggest why God is not contradictory. Well, if we pose the question, perhaps he's not listening, notice what happens in chapter 2, verse 2. God actually answers. God actually answers. This little phrase, God answered Habakkuk. He's posed a question of God and God has given him an answer. Now, it may not be the answer that he wants. And in the coming weeks we're going to see that it might not have been the answer that he wanted. But God has answered. And the answer to Habakkuk's two questions, will you listen and how long until you restrain the Babylonians, are actually given in chapter 2. God answers by saying, I've sent the Babylonians and they're coming to deal with you. And not only have I sent them, but at a time I will restrain them. What about the appearance that God, what about the uh, suggestion that God perhaps appears unjust? See, Habakkuk knows that God can't look on evil. In chapter 1, verse 3. Why do you idly look at wrong? Chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Where's the justice of God in what appears to be a very evil act coming against the nation of Israel? Well, I want to suggest, and we're going to see this in a little more depth next week, that God is not an unjust God. He is not a contradictory God. God acts consistently within what he says he will do. Because in chapter 2, he brings great and fearful judgment against this nation of Babylon, which we know came to pass. Thirdly, on the challenges to whether or not God acts slowly, I think this is one worth considering. Notice the way in which the Babylonians come against the nation of Israel in chapter 1, verse 5 to 11. Keep in mind, this is brought about by God. Notice how they're described. They're called the mighty warrior nation, In verse 6, they're bitter and hasty. They take what is not theirs. In verse 7, they're dreaded and fearsome. Verse 8, a fierce, devouring... Are you getting this? This is an agent of God coming against his chosen people, the nation of Israel. But it goes on, verse 9, their sole purpose is care and concern and building up the nation of Israel. Do you see that in verse 9? Because that's not what the text says. That's why you've got to look at it to make sure I'm getting it right. Their sole purpose in verse 9 is what? Violence. Verse 10. They scoff at kings and rulers. They are an unstoppable force. 
a tsunami of destruction, if you like. This is God at work in the world? Surely this is not the God we know. And surely this is not the God of Israel. The God, I am your father, the father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Israel, you are my chosen one. I have brought you out of slavery. You are my treasured possession. You. This is God working against the nation of Israel. And see, this is the historical situation into which the prophet Habakkuk is speaking. The historical situation, the Assyrian Empire in the north has been declining after having destroyed the ten northern tribes of Israel. The Babylonians are on the rise, coming from modern-day Iraq and moving up through the Fertile Crescent and now down south into the nation of Israel. As an empire, we know from other ancient Near Eastern records, they are a lustful nation. They are lustful for power. They are thirsty to build an empire. And these two small southern tribes of the nation of Israel are apparently going to stand against this entire empire. But what's more staggering and challenging is this entire empire is there because, notice what chapter 1 verse 6 says, For behold, I, Yahweh, am raising up the Babylonians. They are there at God's behest. They are there because of God. Where's the justice in that? They can do so much evil, unrestrained, unchecked. Their only purpose is violence and God raises them up. Surely this is not a God who acts consistently. And so at the time of writing, I want to suggest to you that Habakkuk is faced with a very difficult theological dilemma. He knows his Old Testament. He knows the stories that had been told about the way in which God had worked in the past. And as he looks out on the landscape and sees the way the world is, he asks the questions of God. Has God heard his cry? And secondly, will he restrain the Babylonians? The first question, has God heard? Has he forgotten Israel? See, this is the same God as the God of his forefathers, And so Yahweh, Habakkuk asks, and notice how Habakkuk acts after asking. What happens in chapter 2, verse 1? Chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me. Habakkuk goes and waits after inquiring of God. It's interesting here to notice and remember that it is not a sin to inquire of God when things don't appear to be going the way you expect them to be going. Because that's Habakkuk's action. He makes a legitimate inquiry of God. The thing we do well to notice is the language that he uses changes quite substantially after he has received his reply. Which is why I alluded to earlier that chapter 3 is significantly different. The other thing we do well to remember is the second question that's asked as to whether or not Yahweh will restrain the Babylonians. And next week particularly we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this particular issue about how God actually comes to judge. What conclusions can we draw from our initial foray into Habakkuk? I want to suggest a couple of things that we're going to spend some time looking at. The first is that as we read through these three chapters of Habakkuk, I want to suggest to you that God is actually not a God of contradictions. God is actually acting consistently within his character. 
when God says he will act in a certain fashion, his actions are consistent with his speech. We've seen that God would raise up the Babylonians and he has. They are now coming against the nation of Israel, hence Habakkuk's cry. In chapter 2, when God says, I will judge the Babylonians, as we're going to look at next week, the word comes to pass, a judgment is pronounced on them and the nation of Babylon is essentially destroyed. See, God of the Old Testament is a God who is in complete control of the situation. And secondly, God is a God who brings redemption for his people through judgment. The plan of God was that the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Israel would be judged because they had consistently and repeatedly turned away from following the commands of God. The kings that had been put in place were dreadful with a couple of minor exceptions. And God had as far back in Deuteronomy pronounced a judgment against the nation of Israel if they turned away from him. But at the same time, there are other passages written around the same time where God says, I will redeem you, my people. But the redemption doesn't come easily. It comes at a price. And that is that, as we see later in the history of Israel, the two southern tribes are taken into captivity by the Babylonians, later to be brought back again under Cyrus. Redemption comes through judgment. This is the character of God. See, into this particular situation of lawlessness, of destruction, of fear, what is Habakkuk's cry? Habakkuk's cry in chapter 3 is, in chapter 3, verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk wants God to remember his character and act consistently with it. Despite what appears to be a hopeless situation, Habakkuk wants God to be merciful to the two southern tribes. And as we're going to see quite substantially in the third week when we look at Habakkuk, one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves, which is the question that Habakkuk asks, is how do I, as one of God's people, live in this particular situation? How is Habakkuk to live faced with this destruction? How are we to live if as we observe the world round about us and see destruction and violence and strife, how then we are to live. And in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to spend most of our time looking at that one verse which says, the righteous shall live by faith. So what then do we take away from Habakkuk as we read it thousands of years later? I guess the question that I ask as I look at the passage, which hopefully you ask, is why would God listen to me? Why would God be interested in me? As I look out on the world, I see that it's filled with wickedness. I see that it's filled with the wicked prospering. I see that it's filled with things that I know are not right. And sometimes I ask the question, where is God in this situation? When injustice happens and people get away with it. Where is God when innocent are killed and yet no one shows remorse and justice is not done? And where is God when these things take place? But more importantly, if I am in distress, personally, emotionally, spiritually, how do I know God is actually listening to me? Surely sometimes it feels as though 
We want God to hear us. And we say our prayers. And it feels as though the prayers are sort of hitting the ceiling. And how do I know God's actually listening? I'm one of six and a half billion or thereabouts people on the planet. Why is my voice so important for him to listen to? Why is my cry for help any more significant than anybody else's? Surely there are people in far worse situations than me. So why would God listen to me? Is God really all that concerned for us? And will he answer us when we ask these sorts of questions? So I want to suggest that this was Habakkuk's inquiry. And I think that it's also our inquiry as well at times. Not necessarily all the time. But at times these are the sorts of inquiries that we also make of God. Now at this point I want to leave you with three things. The first is the assurance from these passages that God listens to his people. And we see it worked out. God not only listens but secondly he acts for his people. Here in Habakkuk's situation, he answers Habakkuk's inquiry in chapter 2 and he acts in staggering form, in a staggering way. The very nation of Babylonians he's raised up, he destroys and he doesn't just do it in a small way as we're going to look at next week, he completely obliterates them. Not only does God hear us, but God acts and God acts decisively. The third thing is that God acts for his people. I see, this is how Habakkuk finishes. Flip over to chapter 3. Notice that the situation, although it appears bleak and although it appears desperate, God is actually going to be there in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh is the God who saves people. Yahweh's agenda is to save people. And so if we are those who are in distress, we can be assured that God will hear our cry and that God will answer our cry. Now, one of the riders on it, though, is that it will come at God's timing, not necessarily ours. And we see this with Habakkuk. Habakkuk wants a response. But what happens? He has to wait until at God's good timing the response would come. See, Habakkuk cries out in the midst of the invading Babylonian army about to take Jerusalem. I take it that what Habakkuk wants is a divine act of God so the Babylonians come no further. So that Jerusalem is preserved and the two southern tribes are preserved. But in God's good timing, after hearing the complaint of his people, he acts. But notice how he acts. He allows the Babylonians to not only invade Jerusalem, not only destroy Jerusalem, but take people captive. For at God's good timing and in God's good plan, that was the means by which he would save his people. Now, I don't know all the specific areas of distress that you may be in at the moment or you may face in the future. And I don't want to be legalistic about the way in which God would deliver you from that distress. Suffice to say, as we look at Habakkuk, we know that not only will God hear you when you cry out in distress, he will answer you. And we are to trust, as we live righteously, that it will come at his good timing. Will you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks for the words that we have recorded for us here in the prophecy of Habakkuk. 
We thank you, Father, that you are a God who hears, who acts, and acts for his people. And we pray, please, that we would remember these things and take them to heart. And we pray this in your name. Amen.